Welcome to the Red to Black podcast, hosted by Werner Minchel, ex-Marine aviator and current real estate investor, and Mario Parzino, current Marine infantry officer and business investor. Good evening, Mario. How are you doing in the state of Hawaii? And what are we discussing this evening? Yeah, aloha, Warner. Yeah, pretty good out here in Hawaii. It's, uh, as usual, 82, the slight breeze. Uh, trade one's coming out of uh, the West Coast uh, where you're located. Uh, so tonight we're going to be talking about how do you evaluate the underlying economics of a private business deal? And we're going to go into a couple specifics, but really it's how do you find a wonderful private business to invest in, buying either part of that business or the entire business Two, how do you get actually obtain a purchase agreement with the owner of that business and three how do you conduct due diligence so we'll kind of deep dive onto those three topics tonight and uh, allow the conversation to go where it goes wow those are <laughs> that's super super interesting one thing i know that you about you and i have discussed in the past is Something that I really love is the difference between like a wonderful brand and a commodity. Would you mind talking about that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you don't want to get stuck in a business that buys a brand and sells a commodity. Uh, so really right now you could see this in the airlines. They buy a Boeing jet, they buy a Bombardier jet, they buy an Airbus jet, and they basically sell a commodity. They sell the square footage of seat that you're renting for let's say five hours in the sky. It's a bit, it's a, it's a miserable business to be operating. Some super talented te- CEOs are running those businesses and they're doing as, as good a work as they can do to, to, to make a miserable business model profitable. And they get to the point where they have to charge you for baggage and, you know, little drinks and little trinkets to p- try to eke out of eke out a tiny profit because they have these high fixed costs. They got those planes, they got the gas, and they've got uh, really expensive crew members that need pensions uh, and a, a lot of benefits, whether they're flying or not. Well, on, on, conversely, there's businesses that buy basically commodities. They basically buy things that are traded on a commodity, very low margin commodities that they purchase. They do some value add to the commodity, but then they, they put a brand on it. They have a wonderful brand in the consumer's mind or the end user's mind that relates um, a lot more value than the underlying commodity that is that product. So that's kind of the difference between a commodity business and a brand. And you, if you're going to steer to high returns on investor capital, you're going to want to be in the businesses that have some sort of durable brand. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent synopsis to, to go a little deeper uh, to explain to our listeners what you're saying when you're looking at a commodity business, you're looking at, say, for example, you earn a dollar. That commodity business is spending 95 cents on that dollar to run all that equipment and all that labor. It's a very intensive business. And they're retaining five cents. But a well-branded business like a database or an SAS um, or software as a service business, that business, let's say, is taking in a dollar and it's keeping 30 cents on the dollar. All things being equal with your time, for me, I'd rather put my money into a business that's generating 30 cents on the dollar versus five cents on the dollar. And concurrently, a lot of the businesses that are generating 30 cents on the dollar, they're phenomenal brands. I mean, they're just, they just, there's something about a high profit margin business and their brand that come together. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, for the folks listening, Warner and I are not interested in drilling oil wells or digging up uh, shiny metal out of the earth. Those are like the definition of a commodity business is it doesn't really matter where you buy your oil from. It's a gallon. A gallon is a gallon is a gallon of, uh, of diesel. And the reality is, is we're all just scrambling in that business to try to undercut the competition with price. We're going to sell it. We're going to sell it just above what it takes us to get it out of the ground. Because at the end of the day, people don't really care if they buy it across the street. Uh, there's no brand associated with what goes in your gas tank. It's really just at the end of the day. I mean, there's, there's some secret magical spells that companies try to put on uh, specifically Chevron with Tecron. There's some, there's some things that they're trying to get you to be loyal to a certain brand 
but at the end of the day, you need a gallon of gas to get down the road and it doesn't really matter where you buy it. So you might as well shop versus on price versus brand. Same with uh, companies that are up in Alaska digging up shiny metal out of the ground. If you're going to buy an ounce of that stuff, it doesn't really matter who dug it out of the earth. You're just shopping based on price, not brand. Uh, let's take a, a Yeti cooler. Uh, it just keeps stuff cold. It's a, it's a bunch of plastic that's molded uh, most likely overseas and shipped back. But there's some sp special thing with the sportsman. They've really turned the Yeti cooler into the Rolex Let's say it's a redneck Rolex. It's got a special brand in the consumer's mind that has to do with quality and it has to do with an escapism where it's a weekend and you're finally got the boat in the water and you're going to push off and you're going to hold some ice and potentially put some fish in the box. You can buy you can buy any cooler, really. It's just plastic. It's plastic and some insulation. But there's something special about that brand, Yeti, and they've really tapped into maybe some escapism that uh, is connecting with the consumer. It's a, it's a wonderful business to watch. Um, so it, th just getting those kind of ideas out there is how you're going to find some wonderful pri private businesses. And if I can, I'd go back to two podcasts ago on our first podcast, we talked about um, building sets and reps with the value line investment survey. That document it's found in big public libraries. It's very expensive to obtain for a private investor but it will train you to see patterns. Like Warner was saying, there are certain businesses that retain 30 cents on every dollar of revenue. Their, their operating margin is a 30% operating margin business. If you flip through every value line investment survey on 7,000 different companies or 7,500 different companies in that, in that publication, you're gonna train your eye to start seeing patterns of what constitutes a great business and it can be applied into the private business world as well. Back to you, Warner. Two nuggets of gold there that I'm hearing, which you said, which is we're really talking about two different things here. It's brand and it's the underlying business model. So a dollar of revenue, 30 cents that you retain, and then the brand, which is really the value of the business it's really how the business communicates what it's all about who it really is the personality behind that business and it's communicating that to the customer and the customer they do that over the long term they create this trust those two things together create the makings of a phenomenal business and it's rare that you find individuals that understand both the brand and an underlying business model. You'll have marketing guys that just understand one, and you'll have business guys that understand other, the other part, which is the revenue, the business model. If you can understand both, and you apply that to any business you buy, it will create insane amounts of wealth. Back to you. Yeah, Warner, so you said trust. The brand in the consumer's mind is really, it boils down to trust. If you distill it down, it's, it's saying something about the story. The brand is telling the story. It's a quick synopsis of the story. Every, every business has a story. Some are good, some are really, really great. Some are horrible stories, some are mediocre. Uh, a wonderful brand is a synopsis of the story of how that business started, how it grew from an adolescent business into a adult, full grown business. And I want to give a definition of what I consider a wonderful business or what I would encourage others to look at if they're going to say this is a wonderful business. I would say a wonderful business returns a high level of investor capital back to the investors every year, and it needs very little incremental capital to, capital to grow. And if it does need that incremental capital to grow, it's able to produce that within the business. It doesn't have to do a capital call to the investors to grow the business. It's basically drowning in free cash flow. And what it does, what it enables a business to do is grow the business internally, use as much capital as you need to grow the business. You've generated that through your brand, through telling your story, through a wonderful product or service. And then with the cash left over, it can do one of two things that are really smart. It can pay its investors a dividend so that they can go out and buy other businesses, or it can do the same thing within the business. It can retain that invested capital. It can retain what it's grown and not pay it out as a dividend, but go out and do bolt-on acquisitions. Take other businesses that work in their business, fix them up, bolt them on, 
and grow and expand their business, add fuel to their business through the acquisition of other businesses. That's what I would define as a wonderful business. And I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that unless you have any thoughts and we'll trans transition into how do you actually obtain a purchase agreement with a private owner? I think those are I think those are phenomenal points. Just to recap real quickly, what you said is the brand is is a personality, and there's a story behind that personality that connects with the potential customer. And the goal behind any branding, marketing individual is to create an insane amount of value and connection through that story, where people unconsciously go say or choose, "I'm buying that." I don't care if the price goes up, I'm buying that. Like a Tiffany's Diamond, we've talked about that before. And then number two, it's a business that just, that you can literally, like a database, you can literally just let it sit there. And as long as it's got electricity going to it, it just keeps running. But an oil field, and I know because we have an apartment building up in Wyoming, I've talked to guys in the field. It's an intensive business. It's extremely dangerous. It you have to be really, really careful because it, you know, lives can it cost you lives that quickly. It's it's one of those businesses where you can't just take your your thumb off the pulse. So there's the the really insane great businesses like the database business. It just creates so much, so many resources that you have you have choices, and that's I think that's what you're really saying. And now that we've sort of defined brand, wonderful operating margin business or valuable business now how how would you how would you relate to our our listeners how would you find that type of business that creates yes. insane amounts of wealth so in the public sector it's fairly easy you sit on your hands you stack up a bunch of fiat and you pull the trigger when there's an opportunity to buy something that's wonderful at a reasonable price or even a cheap price that's a that's a no-brainer in the public markets in a private business deal it's much harder there's going to be a lot of people lined up that want to buy that business and you're going to have to provide the current owners of a wonderful business because they have options, because they're going to have lots of people lined up to buy a wonderful business. You're going to have to present them with a value proposition in order for them to sell you their business. This is really their, their life's work. This is a creation that maybe their entire family or generations of their family have poured into. They're not looking to transition this to someone that's going to strip mine it. So if you can provide them with our, you know, if we can go to, Central Oregon, I'm not going to get into too much specifics because we don't actually have a purchase agreement or the beginning stages of this business deal in Central Oregon. What is our value proposition? I can speak to myself and Warren, maybe you can jump in here and help me out, but I'm an operations and tactics instructor in the Marine Corps. What does that mean? I run operations from moving a platoon around the world to an entire Marine expeditionary unit. That's kind of my bread and butter of what I do in the Marine Corps and I've applied that to business. I'm not an MBA. I have no intent of getting an advanced business degree. I don't want to work on Wall Street. I don't want to work an investment bank. I don't want to sell. I don't want to buy something just to sell it. I want to run businesses. My value proposition is I'm not going to strip mine your business. I'm not going to come in there and disrespect it. I want to respect what you've done, what the contributions you've made and the contributions the employees made. And I want to improve it. I want to grow it. Uh, I, think, I think Warner brings some really technical expertise that I don't to the table specifically with technology, with systems, with processes. Uh, so I wonder if you kind of explain your value proposition of how you would pitch a, to a private business owner to, to sell us or to get into a purchase agreement on a, a different value proposition than most people would present him with. So yeah, thank you, Mario. Those are some, those are some excellent points. And I, you know, I know you provide a ton of value and, what I what what I would like to talk to is is you talk about this this individual or this family that's built a business and this applies to any business they put their blood sweat and tears into it and the value that I provide that we provide and that actually most people in life are looking for is you're listening to that individual it's all about communication how do you listen to their story because all you and I are doing really simply is saying hey you have this great story you have this great brand. We're going to come in and help you run it more efficiently. We're going to bring in a great team. But what we're really going to do is take your dream and we're going to brand it. We're going to take that story to the next level. That's that's where I come in. I come in, yes, I have the systems and the tech, but what I really love is how do you take that story 
and communicate it not just in the uh, Pacific Northwest, how do you communicate across the world? And that cr requires creating an amazing story and then pushing it out through the social media channels and other channels that we have in the technology world. And yeah, to finish, it's all about the story. Absolutely. So kind of two things, why do people want to sell their business or what gets them to the point where they're ready to sell? One is a transition or let's say a succession of command type situation where they're retiring or they're, they're, they're wanting to, they're wanting to back off the business and turn it over to someone else to run. Or second is they've got themselves in a position where they need help with debt. Uh, I would much prefer uh, a business owner who just wants to transition. There's, there's not enough, there's, there's very little debt or no debt in the business and we don't have to come in and do a render safe drill. Unfortunately, most people get to the point, um, with debt is that they need some help. That's, that's why they're, they're looking, they're looking for an exit strategy on the debt because it's become a miserable business. It's the underlying fundamentals of the business are wonderful, but their effort, the, the economy has changed or the demand for their product has changed. They, the demand has decreased. It's gone through the floor. The debt payment has re, re, remained the same and they need some help closing that gap. The demand is there, there's nothing they can do to make the demand go up. What they can do is get the debt to go down and make, make it a less of a burden per month so that they can properly pay their employees and properly take care of the community and properly take care of their shareholders. And then, whatever's left over, that's where the owners take a little cut. So I think coming up with the deal in Bend, Oregon, it's potential that, that we've expanded this business. This business has grown not through, um, not through free cash flow, but through debt. They've made some acquisitions through a lot of debt and it might need some guys to come in there and render safe that debt and provide them with a, with a company that's a little bit more appropriately capitalized. So that it goes, it returns back to its former glory of a wonderful business that's able to do wonderful things with the excess free cash flow that it generates. Uh, I think that's, I think we've kind of uh, drilled the nail down or pounded the nail in on a purchase agreement. We could probably move on to due diligence unless you have anything to add to uh, purchase agreements, Warner. Yeah, one, one, one thing to add, those are all phenomenal points. One thing to add is it's, there's obviously there's two things. The individual's grown tired of the business or for own personal reasons they're transitioning out to recap what you're saying. The number two, from a performance standpoint, they've over leveraged themselves with too much debt. Now, it's an assumption, just for our listeners, it's an assumption that we think this business could have possibly done this. We don't have concrete on the ground facts. And and as always, you always start with your assumptions and your ideas, and you'll find out through this product podcast and through our process to find and acquire companies, we'll get down through communication and figure out what the facts are. That's right. The assumptions we've made, that's correct. The assumptions we've made are to continue planning, is to continue the strategy of how we get in front of the owners that are in central Oregon. We've looked and done, our, we've done, this is good because it's transitioning us into due diligence. We've done research. We've looked at the business. We've, we've been fans of the business. We've We've been rooting for the business. We've been watching the business and we've learned a lot about the business. It's not a publicly traded company, so we have no idea what the financials are, but we see patterns. We see acquisitions that they've made. We've seen what they've, they've expanded. So they've either burned through a lot of capital to get to this point, or they've used debt to grow the business. And it's okay if demand doesn't change, but as soon as an economy changes or as soon as a, a condition happens where the consumer or the end user that product pulls back, that debt remains the same. So that's what's occurring right now. We have, we have a global pandemic, you know, that's changed a lot. A lot of things have changed and we're seeing, we're seeing opportunities out there in the marketplace because people have, you know, in the good times they've expanded and it's a good business, but unfortunately that, that expansion, when you're playing with debt, it works both ways. It can be a, it can be a huge benefit to a business to use that leverage when, th when times are good and it can be almost drowning. You can drown a business. You can kill a business with debt when times are bad. Uh, so I think that kind of transition to due diligence. Ultimately, we want to know what we're buying. If we can't understand what we're buying, we can't in, in good conscience write a big check. So we can come in there with a bunch of capital. We can raise capital. And we can render a, 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 a debt situation, a debt bomb safe. But we have to know at the end of the day, what are we buying? 
what exactly are we getting involved with? The plant and equipment is pretty pretty simple. Uh, and Warren, I'd ask you to kind of talk about that from your real estate perspective of really evaluating what is this what is this going to cost us to replace replace uh, like a five axis CNC machine. Uh, it's pretty easy to go out there into the marketplace and price used equipment or brand new equipment. And what you're buying in a business such as Central Oregon is used equipment, and we're going to get a discount on that from brand new equipment, a, a really well-made CNC machine is going to last many, many years. So buying this, buying this used is not really a problem. It's pretty easy to put a valuation on that. The land and the, and the real estate get a little bit more complicated because you got to figure out what would this cost? Was it, was it built right? And then two, what would it cost in the current marketplace to replace this? What is a good valuation? If we had to go, if we had to move this business somewhere else, if we had to expand this business or we had to close this down and build it across the street because that would save us a bunch of money. Uh, that's a little bit harder. So if, if you have any thoughts on that one, we'd, we'd appreciate that from this end. Yeah. So as a, as a construction and real estate guy, the, the first thing, I mean, the essence of real estate is you always want to go and look at it. So number one is, you know, you're looking at this factory. You want to look, look how it was built. Is it an older factory? Is it a newer factory? Some things to watch out for is the concrete pad these machines sitting on. Is it cracking? Was, you know, was it built correctly? Is it sinking? Is the building itself, at, as you're looking at it, is there any leaks in the roof? Because as you know, a drop can end up on a machine and cause rust and cause damage. So you're looking for small little things is the building draining properly because it's in the uh, Pacific Northwest is the offices where it's built. Are they old offices? Is there issues with asbestos? So you want to go through and look at the whole building and you look at, when you look at real estate, if you've ever built anything, you look at from the standpoint of the foundation up. So you look at the foundation, you look at the walls, you look at the insulation, electrical, it's going to be hard, hard to see. You obviously have electrical guy coming in and do some, run some tests, look at the panels. Um, you look at the roofs, you look at how, how it was designed and, and we, we can go really in depth in, in, the, in another podcast on how we would really do that. But you'd really want to understand construction and understand how it's built, understand the location. You know, maybe, maybe this business is in a certain location. Maybe we can move assets to a, an outer line location and then resell the current real estate, um, to for you know or redevelop it for a multifamily property does that answer the question yeah absolutely i, I just go into a little bit more specifics this this company started uh, at the end of world war ii and the equipment that sat probably on those concrete pads was not the same weight that current equipment uh, manufacturers that are producing the, the, the weight of current equipment is much heavier it's better equipment it can make things much faster but it also is much heavier uh, and there's an incredible, incredible force and pressure to generate this hardware that this company um, produces. And those machines can tear a, tear a concrete apart uh, if, if it's not built properly, if there's not a thickness of the rebar, the setup for the concrete pad to actually support that weight. So if we've dropped new machines on old concrete pads, now there's vibration in the machine. The machine is actually torquing itself and, and trying to rip itself apart because it's not stable because it's, there's actually movement in the concrete pad. So going in there and really understanding is this factory in need of a bunch of upgrades or are we actually buying something that's good? There's no need to, to put either more money into the factory or build another factory that supports that new machinery. So that's critical is to kind of understand what you're buying physically. And then on the other side, there's two aspects to understand that it's not real physical, but it's, it's intellectual. It's the trademarks and brands and it's the liabilities. What are we buying? What are we getting involved with on the, on the intellectual property of the business and also the liabilities? What kind of liabilities are we absorbing? Are we taking on responsibility for in this business? That's really the hardest part of evaluating a business. The books are very simple to go through, understanding who owns the stock, if there's any preferred equity, what are the trademarks? What is the intellectual property? What are the patents? That's pretty simple stuff. It's, it's when we get into this liability, you talked about asbestos. There is companies that have been destroyed because they've assumed liability they didn't understand. They did not understand the liability they were assuming and it actually took the whole thing down. So it's, it's absolutely critical. If you don't understand the liability, you bring in experts. 
you bring in attorneys, you bring in people that can tell you exactly what you're assuming if you buy this business and to lay it all out there, lay that out for yourself and your investors and to lay that out to the current owners. Before you start negotiating a price with the current owners, you need to potentially educate them with some un unfortunate news. This is what we've discovered in our due diligence, in our research, in our 30 days, 60 days of due diligence, we've discovered this and this is a concern to us. We wanna educate you on this concern and that's potentially gonna drive the price down. Um, if you find something great in the business, there's no obligation to disclose that in your due diligence. But most of the time, if the roof is leaking, there's a concrete pad issue, or you've, if you've decided that there's potentially greater liability than the owner uh, has probably been forthright with, that's gonna come up in the, in the negotiation when we get down to the price of what we're willing to pay for that property. Uh, does that make sense, Warren? Yeah, no, those are those are excellent points. And as you're talking, and for our listeners, as you can tell, this 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 is like an endless sort of due diligence. There's there's so much, so much to go over. And in terms of performance, one of the ways, one of the ineffective ways to go about it is just to walk in there and figure it out. What I learned as a an ex marine aviator, and in the Marines in general, is the power of a checklist. It's the power of of a system you're using to evaluate this business. And as we do more and more businesses, the checklist will improve. So for example, we're going to the factory, we're looking at the machine. Okay, we don't know what all the checklist items are. So like you said, we bring in a guy from Europe because maybe the local guy hasn't had the training because Europeans, Germans, Swiss, I've seen them build ski lifts. They're very detail-oriented guys. So you bring in a guy that can see things that no one else sees. So the, in the checklist, you have your items that you and I, Mario, that we, that we, you know, we look at, we we evaluate, and then we know, okay, this is an item we we can't evaluate. We're going to bring in an expert. So an essential, like the number one item of due diligence, is develop a repeatable checklist and also have a list of contacts that you can call in, get on the phone, get on a plane. To, to support you in your due diligence checklist. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, that che checklist is, um, it's, how you, it's how you prevent error. Your mind is not able to remember everything you should uh, go through. And that's, that's, a, that's a great way to remind yourself is having a, a checklist and then improving that checklist. Like you said, every time you do this process, you should be getting a little bit better. You should be getting a little bit smoother. You should know what to look for and, and a checklist that's constantly a living document that you're updating. Oh, have we thought about this? Let's go do this. Let's call on those experts. You're right. These people will pay for themselves. You, you hire a guy to come in and look at how the machines are operating from Europe, from Germany, from Switzerland, from Italy, from, from um, Austria. You bring in a, a, a technical expert, a, a structural engineer, et cetera, that, that knows this machinery and how it should be set up. That guy pays for himself. He either confirms the price you should pay or he tells you don't overpay for this because it's it's currently not not working right. We need to put some money into the machinery. We need to fix the floor. It's tearing itself apart. That guy, you, you, you absolutely pay his per diem, his uh, airline ticket and his hotel, and he's going to pay you back multiple times over on that investment to bring him over and take a look at it. Um, and I would say when you're looking at this business as well, when you're doing the due diligence is you're trying to build, you're trying to build in a margin of safety that you can buy this building business and all the plant and equipment and you can know that you can improve it. You got to know that you could come in there and there's something one that you understand the business, you understand what, how it's currently operating Two or three, you know, that it could be improved your processes, your performance, your technical expertise, your team that you're going to put together could actually move the needle. Uh, some of that's just eliminating waste. Good times produce soft men. Hard times produce hard men. Unfortunately, when a business does well for long enough, there's a lot of waste. That's just, it's just human nature, especially in family businesses. There's uncles, there's aunts, there's cousins, there's friends of friends that get hired. And really at the end of the day, they're there not because of their performance. They're there because of their relationships to the other employees or to the management or to the family. And when you come in with new, new ownership and new ideas, you're, able, you're, you're, you're emotionally detached 
from those relationships and you come in there and you're really about the business. You're about making sure this business is able to weather storms and able to grow and able to, the number one, our number one focus is on the customer. You know, the, the employees are number two. The community is number three. And number four is ourselves or our stockholders, or our investors. Our first, our first priority is not to the employees. It's to the customers that use the product. Number two is taking care of the employees. So we have, in order to do that, in order to take care of our employees, we have to take care of the customer. And if we're not doing that to the greatest extent possible, because we have um, people that are not performing to what they need to perform at just because of relationships, they're abusing that relationship. Those people have to be educated of new management, new, new, pe new processes, new people, new blood in here, or they got to find a different job. And it's hard for that when good times happen and there's families and there's long-term relationships, it's hard to tell people, uh, this isn't working out. We got to part ways. Uh, and unfortunately, Warner, I've had to do that, uh, in multiple arenas, we've had to tell people, unfortunately at this time we have to part ways. Uh, it's far easier to do that when you don't know someone very well, uh, you've only evaluated from 90 days, then you've been working with people for decades. So to add, to add what you're saying, you talk about multiple things. You you kind of delved in in a little bit into being a leader. Also brought up an, another topic, which is a plan, creating a plan, which will which will quickly ferret out who's who's performing well and who's not who's are effective at performance and not effective at performance. But most importantly, I want to talk about when you talked about due diligence and coming in. I think a lot of times this is assumption. That these businesses, they're run by families, they're just running the business how their grandfather ran it or their dad ran it, and they're not really bringing performance. So what due diligence does, it comes in and says, this is how the business is performing. It shines a flashlight on, well, you're not operating your machine the way you it's required to be operated, so it's going to cost X to, do, to bring it up to its 100% operational speed. You didn't build the building correctly. And what the due diligence checklist does is it actually shows the owner like, hey, this is the actual value of the business and this is what it's going to take to bring it up to say 95 to 100% operational capabilities. It's, it's a spotlight and that is essential because they may not even know what it is. You bring in the spotlight and go, hey, this is the price we're willing to pay for it. You think it's this price, but here's the facts on the ground. And that's essential, essential to due diligence. That's correct. The flashlight's a great analogy. You're spot, a spotlight. You're, you're shining, you're illuminating the business for your own benefit so you can educate yourself and also for the current owner so that they have a better understanding of what it's going to take. And it's showing you that you're, it's showing, it's showing the owner in this case that what we bring to the table is not strip mining this business. Again, we're not here to just extract from this business. We're here to fix and improve and grow. I think that's a value proposition right there is that if you bring that checklist, that spotlight, and you're showing the current owners, here's what we've identified. It shows them, oh, they're not about the, running this thing as lean as possible and just extracting as much as they can from the business. They're actually all about growing this business, making it last as long as possible. They want this thing to go 300 years. They're just the, they're just the current uh, caretakers. That's all they look at. The, they look at themselves and we're just going to take care of us as long as we can, as long as Warner are, are on this earth. We have no intention of selling your business. We are going to be caretakers of this thing and run it as best as we can. I think that's I think that is that's gravy. I think that's value added to the situation. I would say also what you're doing is you're also building the future. When you're doing this due diligence, super detailed due diligence, you're building out the next three to five years and you can go back to your your investors or your stockholders, your future stockholders, your investors, and you can talk to them about, okay, here's what we see on the ground, here's what we think the price should be. And here's where we think we can take the business in three to five years of our operational and tactical experience and our, our technical expertise. Here's what we could bring. And hopefully here's what we could see in returns if we change this, if we invest this, if we raise this capital and we put this into the business, this is what we think we need in order to get these returns. And then you're building, you're building a relationship and saying, you know, here's the due diligence we did. Here's our assessment. And then watch us in three to five years. Did we, did we meet and fulfill our commitments? on our agreements. I think that's super powerful. Yeah, what you're really creating is you're creating a possibility. You're creating a future because that individual, and this is an assumption, 
that individual running that business may have been running it. He's you know third generation running that business, and he's hit a wall. And he knows he's hit a wall, but he's not willing to fess up to it. But he really loves, and he really loves the business. So when you come in, or we come in and do our due diligence, and we do it in a manner, like you said, it's not a strip mining. We're communicating with them like, hey, this business has got so much potential. You're, it's like a breath of fresh air. If you communicate effectively, it's a breath of fresh air. And that guy goes, wow, like you said, this business is in phenomenal hands. I'm, I'm going to transition it to these guys. We're going to work out a deal that works for both of us. And it's it's a win-win situation. That's that's the key to communication. We're not coming in telling you how to do it. We're simply coming in showing you your blind spots. And we're going to learn some of our own blind spots in the process. But we're coming in in a collaborative manner to say, listen, this is what we see. This is the way forward. This is the possibility we're creating. Are you on board with that? And I think nine times out of ten, they are going to they are going to be on board if they're tired of running the business or they've got themselves into a pickle. Absolutely. And I think in this situation in Central Oregon, they're not tired of running the business. That's a wonderful business that's that's actually a joy to run. I think they've potentially taken on a little bit more debt than is sustainable with demand, and that could potentially cause some problems. I think what the, the main issue is is that their reach is minuscule. It's not it's not anything where it could be. Like we can see that they have regional reach, but nobody knows this business in Florida. Nobody knows this business in Texas. Nobody knows in Pennsylvania. Uh, very few hunters uh, outside of the Pacific Northwest would really even relate to this business. So how do we expand? How do we how do we sell this future fulfilled to our investors of our plan to expand this brand, expand this much further than its current reach? How do we grow this down into Mexico? There's a huge amount of protein walking around the hills of Mexico, how do we get this brand into Spanish, into Mexico City, into some of the larger communities in the in the high mountains of, of Mexico and central Mexico? How do we expand this brand down into Mexico? We have ideas and there's platforms to use and there's technology to leverage where this business is doing a bang up job at 1130 at night on a hunting channel selling their products. They're doing a great, they have a great brand and they have a great product but it's so it's so tiny right now. It's a it's a it's it's just a tiny little child compared to be a grown full grown adult business, and I don't know if they have the skills or the desire or the will or there's something preventing them. There's some block preventing them from really growing this brand out into Alaska, British Columbia, all the way through America and down into Mexico, making it a, a North American. You know, the next step would be: can we make this a North American brand? Yes. You know, we've established our brand all the way from central Mexico to the tip of uh, Nome, Alaska. And then how do we get into Argentina? How do we get into uh, Chile? How do we get down into South America and grow the brand and expand this thing? So we've got North America and South America. And then once you've conquered those two, can you go to Europe and compete with some very old uh, established brands in Europe? And can you start making a ding in that market? I think we have some ideas. I think we could lay out some things to our investors. And we'll look for that in the future. Uh, right now, we're kind of probably a little further over our skis than we need to be, but we're leaning into this. We're gonna we're gonna go to the Shot Show, January eighteenth, twenty twenty two, and uh, we're really gonna try to get in front of these guys and and uh, build and cultivate relationships down there. And uh, I think it's Las Vegas this year. That that's an act. It's an exceptional segue into how are we moving the needle and. To answer your question, I have the answer to your question. It starts in your mind. In whose mind? It's in the leader of the business. It starts in the language. What language are we talking about? We're talking about the language that creates your vision. Is what you were talking about. The vision right now, let's just assume it's on the Pacific Northwest. A new leader steps in, say us. We create a, a bigger vision in our language. We're going to South America. We're going to other areas of the world. We're going to the East Coast. We're going to the Southeast. That's the vision. How do you actually implement that? <clears throat> Excuse me. How do you actually implement that? You create a plan with measurable results that are measurable, action items, 
and timelines that fulfill on that vision. So it's all in your language and then you're taking your language and you're putting it on a piece of paper with measurable timelines and you're putting the right team in place to execute on that plan to fulfill on your vision and fulfill on your measurable results. That's how you move the needle. And when you bring performance to it, the needle moves incredibly fast because performance is juxtaposed to emotion and feelings. Absolutely, Warner. Those are great points. I can almost bring this full circle back to incremental capital and the need that the business needs to have incremental capital. Hopefully it's able to generate that capital within the business occasionally that needs to reinvest. Um, occasionally the market changes. There's a, there's a time where the market, not, not anything to do with the business. It's just the, the market or the, the economy has changed or technology has changed and it needs incremental capital to grow. And it seems like this business is stuck in 1997. From, a, from an outsider, from a guy looking at this, it seems like they either don't know how to do it or they don't have the capital. Or there's something blocking them from taking this business from a regional business into um, really a global business. That, that future fulfilled, talking about that plan in your mind, communicating that, putting down paper with measurable results and a performance for the employees and for the management team is to build this thing out. How do we leverage? We're going to need some capital. Maybe we're going to overfund this deal. We're going to come in there with excess money so that we have that working capital in the business when we start. And we're going to go for three years and we're going to use that very wisely, that incremental capital injection. We're going to use that over the next three years to take this from a regional brand to at least a national brand. At a minimum, we're going to spread this thing throughout the nation. And we can do that a lot cheaper than old school 1997 way of buying buying reach, like really expensive reach. There's ways to leverage technologies and platforms to get in front of the consumer, to get in front of the customer or customer and to show them the brand and tell them our story. I think there, there's, there's, this is absolutely undergeneralized uh, in this business or underutilized in this business that they, they are not leveraging the capacity to expand the brand, to expand the reach uh, through media channels that we could definitely help them out with. So that's the first kind of thought I'm having about the future vision of this business. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thought. And what you're pointing to is, is your language. So say, for example, here's an assumption, individuals running that company right now, possible thoughts in their head are, I don't know how to expand this company. I want to expand this company, but X, Y, and Z is blocking me. Maybe I don't have enough capital. Maybe maybe I think the competitors are too big and they're going to take me out. There's a whole host of reasons that block you from creating a bigger vision. And that's what we do when we come in. We not only provide fresh capital, we provide a fresh vision. And with that vision, we provide a way to execute, which is measurable results in a plan with action items. Some will be ineffective, some will be effective. That's why we have the right team in place to create effective actions and we have timelines. And why that's really important is most people don't understand. The reason why their life moves slow is that it starts, it starts in this type of language. I don't know how to do this or I'm afraid of doing this. And then you just take whatever actions and you have no idea where you're going. When you create a plan, with measurable results, like we've done the Marine Corps, like I've done, did it for nine years in the Marine Corps, you're, you're doing it for 17 years. Things move fast because there's, there's a choice in this world. There's two choices you can make. You either execute on the future on what you said you would do and that moves extremely fast or you choose your past and everything that went wrong in the past and what that does is that holds you back. Like that example in our past podcast of anchors on a boat, it holds you back because you have this limited way of thinking. When you apply performance, like cold, hard performance to it, things move incredibly fast because you're focused on why did this action not work? Why am I not meeting my measurable results? It's quick. We provide that fresh brush of air in terms of capital, thinking, mindset, and execution. We could get stuck in a trauma, victim consciousness, trauma cycle whether that's in relationships or in business or in communities we can get, or even in nations, we can get stuck in this cycle of really 
survival mode, trauma mode, victim consciousness. And it's really, it's not, it's our way of, it's human's way of coping with tragedy is to go through this trauma cycle and it prevents you from going into more trauma. That's, that's the goal is to prevent that from ever happening again. You can hear this about people that live through the Great Depression. And I would say, I would argue that we're going through some sort of depression or, or new depression now. It creates a trauma cycle and people don't want to repeat the past trauma. So they put walls up, they put defenses up, uh, they put castle walls to protect them against more trauma. Well, those are, those are getting you, shifting you out of creative mode and into survival mode. You're just, you're just trying to survive. And, and that really prevents your business from being adaptable to change and to grow and to expand and to use new technologies and to use new influencers and inf ways of influencing and ways of getting in front of your customer. That's all creative thought. That's not survival thought. And survival thought and not going through trauma is completely healthy. It's, it's absolutely critical that you have some sort of survival skill and that you're avoiding trauma. Nobody wants to re re repeat trauma in their life. But if you get stuck in that cycle where all you're doing, every move you're doing, every tactical move you're doing is just to prevent tragedy from occurring, you're never gonna start leapfrogging and getting out in front and starting adapting and thinking through problems out way out in the future. You're constantly in the, in the present, just dealing with the current threat. And again, I get stuck in this. I come, I come into these businesses and to our relationship together, Warner, as a dude that's super pessimistic. Um, I, I'm always thinking about the next storm. I do that with my boating. I do that with my personal life. I do that with my business life. I'm always thinking about where's the next storm? Have I properly prepared for that storm? Can I ride this thing out? I come from this. I'm a natural pessimistic um, problem solver. I'm coming from the problem is how do I ride out the next storm? I have to suspend that and get into a creative space to drive the future through language, through plans, and through action. Let's break down exactly what you're saying because you said a bunch of very impactful things. And I want to I want to break it into the language because your mind and a lot of people don't realize this. They'll say it, but they don't really get it. Your mind is your number one asset. It drives everything you do. The words you create drive your action. So in this podcast, we describe the situation of you're in this like hell in your mind. How do you maneuver out of this hell? And you you describe it. If you look at a past action, let's say let's say the business we're talking about, and they made some poor decisions, they bolted on some some companies that are in a bunch of debt. Well, that that past action is already complete. There's nothing you can do about it. What people are carrying forward is the meaning they put on that action. Oh, why did I do that? Why did my father do that? Oh, this sucks. Now I'm in this situation. And what that prevents you doing, because when you understand this, you, you have fo you're focusing your time. You're focusing your, your you're choosing words. So if you're choosing words that are based on the past, you're not focusing on your plan for the future. So there's two ways you can go. You're either choosing to execute on your plan for the future, which is in language, on a piece of paper, measurable results, action items, and timelines, or you're choosing to focus on the past, which is in language. But the funny thing about the past is there's nothing created there. You're just you're in this victim mindset, like you said, and you're just worried about everything that happened. So you can never overcome those obstacles because your language is blocking you from your plan. That's why it's essential to have a plan because a plan gives you a map. It gives you a choice to not choose your past-based language, which gets you caught in this victim mentality. Is that your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely correct. I think one way of doing that is how do you respect your past? I would say you do a post-mortem. You write down your mistakes. So we do an acquisition. This company... Hypothetically, this company did an acquisition that didn't go right, or they didn't, it wasn't quality. Let's not bury that acquisition and never think about it again, but let's not also overthink it and, and, and live in the past. Let's write that acquisition down on a piece of paper. And let's say once a year, or, or more specifically, before we do another, another acquisition, we go back and we do a post-mortem on that acquisition and we look at here's what we thought when we bought it. Let's let's do let's do an after action. Here's what we thought we were getting when we bought it. And here's what we, th we, we, we bought and we, we ran it for 90 days or 180 days or et cetera, or a year. And this is what we realized. And this is what we had to do in order to write this boat. 
or to fix this problem that we that we purchased. And so there's like three parts of that. Like, what do we think we were buying? What did we realize we bought? And then how do we fix it? And do that post-mortem before you, before you make that mistake again. And that's enough. That's sufficient. You're doing some, you're, you're, you're going back and doing trauma. You're recreating trauma through that post-mortem once a year or before you do your next acquisitions. And that's sufficient trauma cycle for you to live in. It's just once a year or before we do in our next deal, we're going to go back and look at that deal and do the post-mortem. And that's healthy. And I think that's that's a wise thing for businesses to do at any size or people to do at any, at any stage is to, is to do a postmortem, put it on a piece of paper and pull that piece of paper out once a year and realize we've made some mistakes and we don't want to repeat those. Uh, but that's enough. Now we want to go back into the future and we want to start looking at the plans and start tactically. There's Japanese companies like Toyota that plan out for hundreds of years. They're, they're, they're making moves. You, you see Elon Musk bought the Toyota factory in Southern California and they moved to San Antonio and that was years and years and years before the 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 chaos and craziness that's occurring right now in California. They could see that. Why? They're not stuck in the past. They're looking out a hundred years. I mean, there's Japanese businessmen that are, are some of the best in the world and they are diligently looking at the future and looking at the chessboard and and that's their entire their entire processes go what should we be doing to set this business up for success in a hundred years from now will toyota be making the world's best pickup trucks a hundred years from now right now warner and i both know if you go to afghanistan or iraq or any nondescript third world country and you fight a a light tactical vehicle basically you're going to be fighting a, a toyota hilux with a mechanized asset hanging off the back of the pickup truck bed. Uh, that's great advertisement for Toyota. They're they're literally making the world's best pickup trucks that really don't need the break-in oil changed for 100,000 miles. Uh, the maintenance cycle uh, that the Taliban runs is probably pretty poor, but those are they're the, they're like the best pickup truck. And I think they I don't think Toyota got to there by accident. They were able to create a future and execute on that future. And that's super powerful. That's a lesson we could all learn from a giant company like Toyota. Excellent points. So multiple things said there. One distinction I would like to make is when you focus on your past, there's a key way you do it when you write that after action. You focus on the measurable results. You don't focus on the emotions. You don't focus on how you think it should have gone. You focus on how it actually went. So if you bought a company, you overpaid for it. How much did you overpay for it? You bought a company, you made a mistake. Where did you make a mistake in your due diligence checklist? I made a mistake online, item number 57, and it was this. Those are actionable things you can go back and look at in the past. You don't go back and look at the emotion, the feeling, how you thought you should have done it, making yourself wrong. You look at it in straight up performance. Why did Toyota go from the start when you know the guys, the actual name of the guy started, his last name is Toyota, I think, because I've seen it when I go to the Toyota dealership. He, I mean, the... the the Japanese, the Asian communities are phenomenal at, at sticking to performance. It can kind of create a cold culture. At the end of the day, they're phenomenal performance. That's how Toyota was created, by building the most efficient, highly effective engine on the numbers that you could build on the face of this earth. They did it with straight up performance, no emotion. What's most effective and highly efficient engine? Absolutely. I think Dr. Deming, after World War II, after uh, some tragedy in Tokyo and et cetera, they, they, they sent Dr. Deming from, I think, Washington, D.C. over to Tokyo and Japan, and he sorted out their manufacturing process and really showed them how to, how to do quality manufacturing again and get back into a sustainable economic uh, engine of manufacturing in their country. And it really, they, it really put them up there with Germany, I would say, as number one and number two manufacturers. And again, they, they stole some ideas from Dr. Deming about lean Clean manufacturing processes and quality manufacturing. On the emotional front, I think emotions are very powerful. What they do is they're an early warning sign in your body that something isn't right. Emotions, you don't want to suppress emotions, but you want to control them and recognize them for what they actually are. They're warning you, emotions warn you that something isn't correct. The atmospherics of the situation have changed. That's why I have an emotional reaction here is that something didn't go right or something is not gonna go right. It's perfectly healthy. It's when you operate off of emotions and make decisions off emotions that you're gonna have the most regrets. So recognizing, hey, I'm having this emotion 
towards this situation, well, that's an early warning signal. It's telling me something. I'm going to respect that emotion, but I'm not going to make a decision off of it, whether it's anger, whether it's fear, the fight or flight response. That's, that's being driven by emotion. Let's get out of that and get into analyzing the problem. Like you said, go through the checklist, look at items that we've potentially overlooked that we could have and write those down and do the after action so we don't repeat that. That's, that's straight performance. That's straight analytical thought and reason and logic. That's not emotions. But that emotion, that like disappointment is an early warning sign most of the time that something didn't go as, as planned or it's not going to go as planned. So we've got to respect emotions, but not operate off them, not get stuck making decisions off of our emotions. Yeah. Multiple things said there. So when we're going down through, through that, that could be a rabbit hole in itself. Emotions, there's disempowering emotions and there's empowering emotions and emotions. Yeah. They're designed as a survival response. We want to ignore, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with mourning, you know, say, for example, my brother-in-law passed away. There's nothing wrong with mourning that individual. You, you want to get complete with that mourning process. You want to get, if, if you see fear from a, you're about to crash into another car, you take corrective action that's based on performance and not crash into that car. They're great warning signs. Like you said, you don't want to be overcome with it. So how do you really harness emotion? The goal is to create empowering emotions like love, like like connection, like joy, like ease, like relaxation, create emotions, spend more time in empowering emotions. And when the disempowering emotions come in, recognize them, learn as to what they're telling you, and then go into performance. Okay, hey, what's going on here? Spend most of your time, because you don't want to solely focus on straight up performance without an empowering emotion, passion, and vision behind it. You'll, you'll burn out. So it's, it's that empowering emotion, with performance. That's, that's the key. Great point. Yeah. We're just to, just to fill everybody else in last Monday night. So not this previous Monday, but about, about, um, 10 days ago, you lost your brother-in-law and that's uh that's a process you guys are going and a great dude, a humble, a humble young man, an incredible athlete. And he was 38 years old and he lost uh, his life, uh, in a tragedy we can't put him back here, but we can respect that. And we can close this out. Like we got to do life with this young man for a couple of years. We got to see him grow. We got to see him be part of a community. We got to see him build a business and build his little tribe of guides and men that he did life with. And he went to so-and-so, so-and-so combat with in his business. And then his family, he got to, he got to create a little, a little tribe in his family. And we can respect that. It's, 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 it's very good to go through mourning. It's a healthy thing. Mourning is good for the soul. It's actually much better than celebrating a success is occasionally going to funerals. Funerals are, are really grounding you to the truth that we're all, we're all terminal. This is a quick life. This uh, 80 years or so that you get to walk this, this earth, if you're lucky, is, um, is a gift. It's all a gift. You, you coming into this world and your time here and the relationships you have, it's all a gift. It's gravy. And uh, going to these funerals, going through these tragedies, they're not, I don't, I don't wish this on people. I don't wish these on people or even myself, but I recognize that these are actually good for the soul is to, is to occasionally pause and reflect that life is, life is precious. Life is short. And we need to take each day and the relationships. We need to be kinder to each other. We need to help people. We need to build this whole podcast is about building really specifically young men up, but building people up, not tearing them down. There's enough people out in the world that are focused on tearing each other down because that they don't have the same ideology or the same thoughts, or the same politics. They're, they're constantly at war with each other. I think we're going to be um, a breath of fresh air for some young men is that we're here to simply build you up. We're just going to provide a ton of value. And to finish this off, we have, we have about a minute left. This segues in, and thank you for honoring honoring my brother-in-law. This this segues into what we're really doing when we come to a, you know this business in the Pacific Northwest. I keep wanting to put an S in front of my P. I have no idea why. We are providing completion to that business owner where he's dealing with emotions. It's not going the way he wants, or maybe it is. But what we're doing is we're providing that, in essence, that mourning process to be complete or that process that didn't go the way he wanted to go. We're providing that 
fresh breath of air and we're doing that through effective communication and we're helping him supporting him and completing what's not working what's not moving for him and it's the same thing as completing the emotion with mourning at a funeral or any other emotion we're providing that guiding light that fresh breath of air and that's how i'd like to end this podcast anything else we're at the 10 o'clock mark any other thoughts Nothing to add, Warner. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Blessings and uh, say hi to your family for me. Thank you for listening to the Red to Black podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to our podcast. If you would like to connect with us in the future, you can find us on LinkedIn. Simply search for Warner Minchel or Mario Parzino. Also, You can find a link to our LinkedIn profiles in the profile section of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.